We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. In a poll done for the Toronto Star, uh, Abacus Data's uh, latest tracking for the Star had the Tories up three points. This is provincially in the province. This is Doug Ford, provincially, not federally. Uh, the Tories up three points to 41%, while the NDP had dropped four to 19%. Bonnie Crombie and the Liberals uh, remain mired in second place at 27%, says uh, the Toronto Star. To talk more about all of this, Eddie Shepard with us, Vice President, Insights at Abacus Data, and here now. Eddie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. How are you? So far, so good. Eddie, this seems kind of bizarre when you think about it. Um, uh, the PC's up 3, 41%. Uh, the Liberals pretty much hanging steady at 27. Down 4 is the NDP at 19. Considering the NDP is the official opposition in Ontario, the BC, uh, uh, Bonnie Crombie doesn't have a seat yet, and the Liberals aren't at official party status yet, which obviously restricts what they can do. Why this massive dip in the NDP? I think it's quite interesting. You know, the greatest risk for the NDP uh, and Merritt Stiles is a strong liberal opposition, uh, leadership, and resilient Greens. And I think what we're seeing right now, despite not having a seat, is that Bonnie Crombie does present uh, a threat to to the other parties. And I think her her presence is there, even though she doesn't have a seat in the House yet. Uh, what does uh, Merritt Stiles have to do in order to take advantage of the position that she holds? Is it too much uh, time spending on um, scandal or greenbelt issues as opposed to kitchen table affordab- uh, affordability issues? Why do you think they're not resonating? I think right now they're having a hard time really figuring out how to be relevant. Um, while also kind of managing the demons of the tunnel in, in its own party. So, you know, there was infighting in the party. Uh, that is partly to blame to the NDP drop, but I think at the same time, there's no clear focus in terms of what, you know what is the relevant thing that they can really hang on to 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 regain their momentum that they had. And you said a failing. The best thing for the NDP is a failing Liberal Party. Does this mean obviously that the Liberal Party with Bonnie Crombie at the helm will soon, or it's anticipated that this is going to p- uh, pick up steam and and slowly eat away at the NDP? Yeah, I think, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's tough being an opposition leader in Ontario, especially when you don't have official party status nor a seat in the legislature. So right now, Bonnie Crombie is definitely facing an uphill battle when it comes to that. But I think, you know, we've seen with the the attacks put out by the uh, the Premier Ford and the government there towards Crombie that, that, that she's really their focus. So I think that, you know, she will need to start talking to the public, kind of like Polly Up did, uh, in terms of getting out there and speaking to them, uh, taking a page from his strategy to really reach that public mindset, because as of right now, you know, she has limited time uh, in the house, the, the limited questions, limited funding. It's a, it's a challenge for them. Um, and I think it's, it's really weighing in on uh, the overall success there. You talked about fighting within the NDP party or, or perhaps um, um, a clashing of views. Uh, Sarah Jama, who's not with the party anymore, sitting as, as an independent, obviously a lightning rod at one point with controversial comments and positions around the Hamas Israeli war. How much of that has an impact, do you think? I think that's, that's one of the things we've definitely seen as being uh, an impact. Uh, you know, when that occurred, we have seen the liberal or so the NDP support drop uh, a little bit over time. And, and it's been kind of slow but gradual since that. So I think it definitely has a, a weighing impact on their overall committed vote and the support for that party. And it, does it, it, you know, obviously the provincial entities and federal parties, are, they're two totally different things. But does one reflect the other? Because if you look at the uh, the federal numbers, um, it doesn't appear that the NDP is catching on above the Liberals federally as well, despite the hard time the Liberals are having right now. Does Does the federal party reflect on this in any way? I think to a degree it it can, uh, but but I think in you know the federal party level, I think it's it's more so the kind of the pact they have with the liberals that is impacting their uh, the way the public views them at the federal level, and there that doesn't really exist at the provincial level. So I think not having that connection, that tie there, definitely helps uh, on the NDP side of things. So I, I think it does definitely play a role because there is a lack of support at the federal level, and now we're seeing that kind of trickle down to the provincial level as well. But I think they're they're relatively independent for the most part because of the differences across. Uh, obviously, good news for the Liberals because without uh, a leader with a seat or official party status, they're still uh, quite favorably ahead of the NDP, which is looking like um, e- even if there was an election called today, they'd, they'd get the official opposition. Yeah, as of right now, it's, it's kind of looking like it is a two-party race. Obviously, 
the the Conservative government is well out uh, as of right now. But the one thing to note is that there is a significant amount of undecided votes out there right now. So despite the fact that the Conservative Party is you know arguably in the driver's seat right now, if you know, twenty three percent of people are undecided. So if they start yeah. to lean towards the Liberals or the NDPs, that can be really concerning for the Conservative government. So does do you talk about the NDP and what they have to do moving forward, obviously try to relate more to kitchen table issues similar to uh, what other parties have done. Um, is this something that you can they can turn around, do you think? I think there is definitely potential. You know, the election is not for, for a little while now. And I think, as I said, yeah. because of the number of undecided votes, that's a significant amount of population. There's about 5% of the electorate right now um, that could swing their, their opinion. So really, when you, when you think of looking that way, if there's a better alternative in the minds of, of Ontarians, they will switch their opinion. Um, and then a lot of that undecided vote are actually people who voted conservative in the last election. So if the NDP, you know, if Mayor Stiles can start to really get to the average day Ontarians' mindset and, and reach their main issues, there's a real chance they could turn this around and, and come back and make it a three-party race. Eddie Shepard with us, Vice President, Insights and Abacus Data. Their latest numbers, uh, 41% for the PCs, 27% for the Liberals, 19 for the NDP. Eddie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. You as well. Let's talk politics. Let's bring in Larry DeAndy, former mayor of City of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott, I'm very, very well. Uh, thank you. Always great to talk politics with you, Larry. Um, I want to do, I want to try to squeeze provincial and federal all in here in this break. Uh, very quickly, uh, abacus poll for the Toronto Star, PCs, uh, up three at 41%, uh, liberals, uh, steady at 27% and second, uh, down for the NDP in 19. Considering the NT, NDP are the official opposition, Bonnie Crombie is a newly elected leader, doesn't have a seat yet, and the party still, uh, has to deal with unofficial, uh, not having official party staff. How do you explain their stronghold over the NDP and the NDP sliding away? Well, I, I think that uh, the answer is Bonnie Crombie, um, and not uh, that she has a position yet, uh, and nor have they really defined their policies. Uh, but I think even the Conservatives know that she's, she is the threat. That's mm. why uh, uh, Ford, uh, Premier Ford, at every opportunity, castigates Bonnie for every sin uh, yeah. political sin imaginable. Um, and, and I think uh, she has the name recognition. Uh, and so uh, that's being reflected in the polls. Uh, however, let me tell you that even during the last election, when the, uh, when the Conservative won majority, the Liberals were ahead of the NDP. But, but the Liberals did not, um, they, their support was wide, uh, but not deep. Uh, and whereas the NDP is narrower, but very deep in the, in the seats that they hold. Mm. And they all only try to uh, hang on to what they've got. So I wouldn't put much stock in that poll just yet, other than it's showing that uh, there's potential growth for the uh, Liberal leader. What do you do if you're the NDP and nobody's talking about you? <laughs> well, you know, um, Merritt Stiles, I, I, I know she's the leader. Um, I have to search um, her uh, when, uh, when, uh, whenever I want to find out what's happening with the party. And even when I visited Queen's Park and I sat through question period, she was practically invisible. Uh, now, this is before the, uh, the, the Greenbelt uh, so-called scandal and so on. But, but it, was, she, it was hard pressed for me to figure out who the leader of the opposition was. So whoever's doing PR for uh, Ms. Tiles is not doing a very good job, or at least it's not seeming to have traction yet. So they need to get her out. They need to get her talking more. They need to, uh, to uh, I think, um, uh, talk about uh, what they will do for the province, not just all the things that Ford is doing wrong. Uh, on that note, uh, Larry, do you think it's uh, too much time spending, uh, spent, uh, uh, you know, f- throwing mud at the other party, which, of course, you know, that's politics. That's what it's all about, as opposed to identifying with Ontarians and affordabil- affordability issues, which is really the concern here. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Negative. Everybody hates uh, negative um, uh, polling or at least negative campaigning, uh, but it works. Uh, I mean, that's been the success of the federal conservatives. Uh, I think Paul Yevre, who um, 
is not a person of substance. That's a very partisan opinion, of course. Uh, but he's risen in the polls because he knew that to bring the liberals down federally, you had to bring Trudeau down. And that's what they've spent the last couple of years doing, attacking Trudeau in very personal ways. All these flags um, that I wouldn't be surprised are being funded by the Conservative Party or their or their sympathizers. You know, these rude uh, flags. I won't mention what they say, but everybody knows. Um, um, the uh, and, and, you know, they, they've been aimed at just vilifying the prime minister and they've had some success. So the, the point is everybody hates um, uh, negative uh, campaigning, but because it works, everybody does it. Uh, some would say, uh, Larry, that JT has brought himself down, not any member of the opposition, but I digress. All right, let's talk about Pharmacare. We were lucky enough to have Jugmeet Singh on on Friday, and then all of a sudden the announcement came across on, on, uh, Pharmacare and such, and he was very excited and, and, and very, uh, celebratory over this announcement and such. But like zero from the Liberals all weekend, uh, the Prime Minister, he's off in Ukraine, um, uh, over there, and then on his way back from Poland, now I understand. But why is the NDP making this announcement? Why is it in not in lockstep with the Liberals? Why are the Liberals letting the NDP get the spotlight here? Isn't it not a decision between the two of them? Well, you'd think. You'd think if if I had been part of the negotiations, I would have also negotiated a, uh, a communications plan uh, so that uh, you know everybody gets the credit um, as much as as can be given for this issue. And I think that there is some credit to be given, uh, but they clearly didn't do that. And I think the NDP just jumped the gun and said, we're going to take credit for this. Remember that the NDP is the third party. Uh, and when they're even in an informal coalition, um, uh, as they are with the governing party, because of all of the levers that a government has, to communicate and get airtime and FaceTime on television and other media, um, the uh, the third party is always lagging behind. And even though they may have been the mo- the uh, the motivation for this deal, in fact they were that 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 was the that was the reason that they struck the uh, the, the the compromise with the liberals in terms of keeping them in power was to get uh, pharmacare and dental care. Um, uh, they they would be left in the dust. Remember that uh, that the NDP were the father of Medicare, yep. uh, Tommy Douglas, and when he was premier of Saskatchewan and so on. And yet when it was introduced by the liberal government, the liberals took all the credit and got all the credit and were rewarded uh, in terms of uh, the, the polls and, and who the uh, who Canadians elected. And so I think that the NDP in this case said, well, we've learned that lesson. We're going to get in front of this train and, uh, and make it our own announcement and claim uh, the victory. Um, I think that's part of what's happened here. The other part, of course, I think is that um, not all the details are, are out yet. Mm-hmm. And I think once once they will be and the government makes the official announcements, there will be lots of fanfare. And that will garner all of the press attention as well. And the NDP will be, be forgotten again. Uh, even though historically they, they've had a lot to do with it. When do you think we'll hear more on this, Larry? Get the details, timelines, that sort of thing. Well, when I was talking to the Prime Minister this morning, he told me, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> your, guess, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, they, they, right now, because uh, even though the election has, has been forestalled, um, everything is being seen now through the prism of, of the next campaign. And so they'll make the announcement when they've got, you know, everything in place. Uh, and they'll put a bow on it and present it um, uh, with all with all of the with all of the necessary information that needs to go uh, to the, all the stakeholders as well. So my guess, because the NDP sort of seemed to have jumped the gun on the announcement, is that it's going to be sooner than later. Um, so I would imagine over the next very short while. But 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 you know they they'll be weighing uh, that um, in terms of how effective the communication will be, I'm sure. Uh, are they? Is this a priority for the Liberals? Will they go slow on it? Will they drag their feet? Because it does draw attention to the NDP. Yeah, I. you know what? I, I don't think they're, they're going to be dragging their feet. I, I think they want to sort of get the communication right. And, um, 
and take the appropriate credit at the end of the day. It's a government initiative that will change the law. Yes, they need support from other parties or at least one other party in the NDP obviously will give that support. Uh, we'll see whether the Liberals will be magnanimous in recognizing the NDP role uh, or they will uh, not. Uh, my, my guess is that you know they won't go out of their way to pat the back of the NDP party, but they're also not going to go out of their way uh, to insult them either. Uh, so, um, you know, um, I, I guess given that they didn't jump right out with an announcement after the NDP leaked the, the story, uh, tells me that they're okay with the story being out there, but they'll they'll frame it as a government initiative when the time comes, which which at the end of the day it will be. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about all things political. As always, Larry, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. We certainly know where the discussion is on housing. It's uh, all over the place as uh, supply is short, demand is high, creating an environment which uh, we are seeing. And uh, really, when you think about it, at the end of the day, a self-inflicted wound by just not keeping up with this over time. Now the mad dash is to get it done and to catch up to where we are as uh, we see more and more having a extremely difficult, difficult time in obtaining housing. Uh, Hamilton is clearing a path towards a more gentle density by inviting triplexes and fourplexes into neighborhoods where single detached homes predominate are predominant. Uh, but of course, we certainly know the issue over a parking lot in Stony Creek or two and getting housing built. Let's bring in Craig Kazar, Ward 12 Councillor, City of Hamilton and Second Vice Chair of the Planning Committee and with us now. Craig, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you. So tell us about the the plan or, or the path to more gentle density. What's it all about? Mm-hmm. Well, as you mentioned, we are in a housing crisis. Plus, we're looking to welcome a couple hundred thousand more neighbors in the coming years. So one of the strategies uh, Hamilton is taking is to modernize our low-density residential zoning to enable, as you mentioned, triplexes and fourplexes on uh, on existing residential lots. And there's a whole bunch of positives to that uh, and beyond just accommodating more neighbors. Uh, obviously, we know of the situation that's going on in Stony Creek right now and the gentle discussion over parking versus housing. Um, this sounds like a great idea, but I can see red flags popping up everywhere, just like there is here. What are the challenges for you moving forward? Well, change can be difficult for human yeah. beings in general, and this would be no difference. Um, but I think... If people have an image of the neighborhoods are going to be transformed overnight, you know, I can help uh, put their minds at ease. Uh, I'll use an example from my colleague, uh, Councillor Alex Wilson. We have roughly 120,000 residential properties in Hamilton, and we need to um, have 47,000 new homes by 2031. So if we were going to accomplish all these new homes just with gentle density by adding to existing, existing residential lots, just one in three homes would need to add one unit. You do the math. Now, of course, we're building a lot of other density in mid-rise and high-rise downtown, other parts of the city. So that's not going to be required to accommodate everything in the residential area. So you know, it'll happen as people um, have opportunity. You know, Think about your aging elderly neighbor, your neighbor next door who's aging, maybe they're widowed. They can't financially maintain their home anymore. It'd be great for them to have an option within the neighborhood to move into something smaller. Or if they don't want to do that, to add a second unit, maybe a basement apartment, maybe a detached secondary unit in their backyard to help support them, whether it's their family moving in or they just need the extra money to pay the mortgage. So there are a lot of positives, um, but this all comes, of course, from uh, Hamilton City Council deciding to freeze the urban boundary and find ways to build gentle density within the city that we have. Is this uh, more about adding granny suites or basement apartments, or is this more about adding duplexes or triplexes to lots that normally had a house on it? Yeah, well, it it gives options, and that's what it's about. So as of right now, uh, most residential lots will be able to add up to four units. So an existing home could be converted internally into four uh, units, three or four units. Uh, also, uh, you know, a, a, re- a renovation could be done, you know, demolition and rebuild uh, to build four units. And there are guidelines that staff have put in place for builders on height. You know, it needs to fit into the neighborhood. 
on the massing. So you don't want to have some big square building. So variation in the roof lines are, are part of the design guidelines and controlling setback. So uh, it's an average setback of its neighbor's home. So there's lots of thought that staff have put into what this looks like when it gets executed. Craig, do you see that? And, and again, we all know that this is a solution that's going to require a, a multi-prong apo- uh, approach. And as you're talking about, is this easier than converting a pro- uh, parking lot into, um, you know, housing or something like that? Is this a is this a gentler move? Do you think, or do you think this will come with, um, you know, the the fallout that the Stony Creek parking lot debate's having? Well, it is called gentle density and it gives people options, right? So this does not mandate that anything needs to happen. The yeah. city is not going to deign that this lot must be converted into a fourplex. It gives people options, like I said, you know, for people, for young people who want to move out from their parents' house, and I have some of those in the next few years, they're not going to be able to buy a, sem- a, a single detached home that's $1.5 million. But if there is a fourplex, you know, that's maybe a quarter of that cost. Uh, that gives them a chance. So it gives people options for different life stages at different price points, and it'll happen naturally over time. So it is gentle density, and it'll happen in a gentle manner over time. If, and I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, Craig, if neighbors object, um, how do you balance this? How do you hear everybody out? Yeah, well, we, we need to live together as a community uh, and you know more closely with our neighbors. Um, this sets up the zoning for this to happen. So it kind of sets the expectation. It sets the guidelines. I mentioned some mm-hmm. of the design guidelines, um, but it does give the opportunity to add more units. And you know, we need to work together to uh, you know, make make this happen because we need more neighbors. And the, the one thing I would add is as we add more density, whether it's triplexes or, or fourplexes or other mid-rise residential, it brings more tax revenue and it reduces the tax burden on everybody. So there's a positive there. And I know everyone is concerned about property taxes. Craig Kassar with us, Ward 12 City Councilor, City of Hamilton, second vice chair of the planning committee in regard to a path towards gentle density. Craig, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Thanks. All right. uh, To talk more about uh, what is going on with housing in Hamilton and where we're going moving forward, uh, let's bring in a guy to talk about how we actually determine what is going on. And that's Mike Collins-Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. And he is with us now. Mike, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Beautiful day. Doing great. Thank you for having me. So, Mike, last week, we were a lot of us were surprised when all of a sudden the premier shows up at uh, the office of Olivia Chow, downtown Toronto, and congratulates her for not only meeting their housing starts, but exceeding them by about 50 percent, I think. And of course, that gets them uh, quite a bit of money from a housing fund. And then as this story uh, uh, developed and such, we found out there's about 19 municipalities, including Hamilton being one of them. Are you surprised we are at this stage? considering uh, the supply issues that we're having, or and, and I guess, what is defined by a target? I think there's two parts to the story. And the first is that uh, 2023 was a pretty good year for housing starts in Ontario, and, and cities like uh, Toronto have exceeded their targets, as well as Brampton and, and uh, Hamilton as well. Uh, and housing starts are sort of a bit of a lagging indicator in terms of where the housing market is. You know, those starts reflect sales that happened in terms of new construction a couple of years ago. Uh, So the sales have slowed down and we're expecting 2024 to be a a tougher year. But, you know, the results at the end of 2023 were good news for the province and good news for cities like Hamilton. So are you assuming there'll be less targets hit next year? The market has slowed significantly. A lot of these increases in interest rates, mortgage rates, et cetera, um, really start to hit um, in the years after uh, they occur. So, for example, if it, whether it's in downtown Toronto or downtown Hamilton, the housing start occurs when the concrete is poured for that building. Uh, but builders mm-hmm. and developers need to get to about 70% pre-sales before they can get construction financing to go. So if a building is starting construction in 2023, that reflects units that probably sold in 2021 or 2022. We've seen uh, sales in Hamilton fall off a cliff in 2023. It was the worst year for new home sales in well over a decade. 
that's going to be reflected in slower housing starts in 2024 and 2025. So it is a good news story about construction starting in 2023, but uh, we definitely have concerns that the next couple of years, despite high population growth, despite the need for more housing, are going to be leaner years in terms of construction. Are then, the uh, Mike, these rewards justified if they were issue, uh, projects that were already in the pipeline before this was announced? Or did the municipalities actually earn these by speeding them up? You know, if the city of Hamilton or the city of Toronto is receiving money from the province for infrastructure that will help in the future, you know, growth-related infrastructure for us to get more pipes in the ground, for us to build that infrastructure that we need for future housing, I, I think it's good news, and I think that the province coming to the table to be a partner with these municipalities is good news and will help us in the future get more housing supply to the market. So it it is positive, and it's great that the province has come to the table with some funding. I think it's fascinating that they've actually got a, a housing, a, a tracking housing uh, progress uh, page on the Ontario site. So you can actually see which municipalities are faring well, which uh, not so well. Why are some hitting targets, others not? I mean, I can look at Hamilton, Burlington. Hamilton is, Burlington's not. How do you explain that? Well, the, the province is tracking a number of things. So there's the market housing starts. And in uh, 2023, there were about 90,000 housing starts, which is a little down from last year. They're also tracking additional residential units. So these are not necessarily new construction on new homes, but it's uh, secondary suites, uh, renovations that are occurring. And that is still reflective of a new housing unit on the market. They're also tracking long-term care beds, which seems to be a little different than new housing. So there are other items that are being thrown in here that are potentially inflating the actual amount of construction happening in Ontario or in Hamilton for that matter. So uh, Hamilton hit their target by about 120%. Again, this is good news. It is showing that there's units being built, but the online tracking program is tracking things that aren't necessarily what folks would actually think of as a new housing unit if we're also throwing in long-term care beds. That uh, that surprised many people, but is a bed a bed a bed? I think it makes sense for the additional units and the secondary suites. You know, here in Hamilton, we are encouraging people to consider renovating their homes, adding a garden suite, adding a basement right. apartment, and, you know, that yeah, is that a would... home for somebody. Yeah, um, that's a, like a, a long-term care facility, a long-term care bed. I, I think that is different than a home. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, Mike Collins-Williams with the CEO of the West End Home, Bu- uh, Home Builders Association. Some hitting targets, others not so, um, but certainly it is an improvement. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a fantastic evening. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Cybersecurity, an issue for the city as it has been for many municipalities and companies, organizations, what have you, who have been hacked. And it appears to be a situation with City Hall. David Shipley is with a cybersecurity expert with CEO of uh, Boceron Security and here now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for the time. Are you surprised, David, when you hear that a city has been uh, a target of cyber uh, bullying or cybersecurity incidents in any way? No, not at all. I mean, this this is sadly uh, among dozens of Canadian municipalities that have been hacked so far. Unfortunately for Hamilton, however, it now takes over the crown of the largest Canadian municipality to deal with a cybersecurity incident that we know of publicly. Um, Previously, that title had been held by St. John, New Brunswick, and it went through an extraordinary amount of pain with recovery efforts taking almost a year to get them back to where they were pre-incident and more than $3 million. When it comes to municipalities, government or government run organizations, if it's uh, services, that sort of thing, should there be some sort of uniform policy across the province so everybody should have at least this level of, of security? 
Well, I think the, the biggest thing is that municipalities have been left to figure this out on their own for the longest time, not just in Ontario, but across mm. North America. And, and when you ask uh, mayors of major cities and, and the mayor of Atlanta, when it got hit, you know, she was very forthright about the impact of it and, and where the politicians' heads were at. You know, they, when they went to get elected at the doorsteps of voters, they did not hear about the cybersecurity of the city, nor, yeah. too, I would argue, probably the uh, elected officials in Hamilton. And when you look at the challenges municipalities have faced of, of offering the services at the lowest possible tax burden to the individuals, mm. piling tons of money into cybersecurity was not at the top of the list. Yeah, it's like spending money on a new roof. Uh, boy, no fun there. Um, is it pretty much wait till we get hit and then try to correct the damage? Well, for many organizations, it does take a crisis to spur on the kinds of change that we need to see. Although Ontario is having important conversations about um, cooperative efforts in healthcare, higher education in municipalities to, to work together to prevent this onslaught, which is good. Um, hopefully the city has good cyber insurance and like St. John can leverage that to build back better. And if this is a ransomware attack, which we don't know for sure, but it, it sure looks, walks and quacks like a ransomware attack duck, um, hopefully the city doesn't pay. So talk about cyber insurance and, and how, do you, uh, how do you insure yourself against this sort of thing? Well, it's becoming harder and harder to get, but many municipalities have had cyber insurance for some time. Um, the cost has grown considerably, and um, if they do have insurance, uh, they will have to work with their insurer to deal with the incident, sometimes even letting the insurer decide what the best course of action um, will be. And in one case of one Ontario municipality, the insurer called the shots. They made the decision to try and pay the ransom mm-hmm. because that was cheaper to recover. So it'll be interesting to see, um, do they have insurance? Is insurance uh, calling the shots or is it the elected mayor and council? And and what I would say is this, is that these, if this is a ransomware attack, and again, it most likely is, although that remains unconfirmed, if there's an extortion associated, the groups that do this often go on to victimize uh, others, including the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and and, and other vulnerable areas. So if we can avoid paying, that would be huge. Are you surprised that um, more cities aren't sharing, municipalities aren't sharing information on this, aren't having a summit of some sort on this? Or has it got well, to there, that point? Yeah, like different municipal groups, like in Ontario, the um, a group called MISA, they are having regular conversations about cybersecurity. But again, that, that tends to be the IT yeah. team, sometimes the chief administrative officer, and they get as much airtime as they get compared to all the other issues municipal leaders are trying to wrestle around with. Does uh, the RCMP uh, in- involved in, in this once it gets to this point, obviously, um, do, do they have the tools they need to, to investigate this? Well, it, it is interesting. Um, Ontario is very fortunate. I've heard from a number, of, a number of organizations, even national organizations, where the Ontario Provincial Police actually have a very robust um, cyber component. Um, I would hope, and I, I think if it hasn't happened, I highly encourage the city of Hamilton to reach out to the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, which can tap into the resources of, of the RCMP, the Communication Security Establishment, and more. There are resources out there to help. If you pay, and we certainly have heard many situations, and you mentioned uh, the insurance company may just suggest pay it, move on. If you pay, does that mean you're going to get hit again? Or do you have to pay and then beef up security and hope that it doesn't? But you've already agreed to pay. Does that make you a simple victim? Well, in half of all cases where they pay, what you pay didn't get you what you thought it was going to be. Either the uh, decryption tools didn't work, they didn't work well um, at all. So, so paying is no guarantee of recovery, problem number one. In, in up to a third of cases, paying actually puts you on the radar for them to come back and and try and take a little bit more off the top. So, so paying is not the easy out that, that people once thought it was. Uh, how much energy are we devoting to this now? As you said, it's one of those things that, oh, yeah, who wants to spend more money on that? I'd rather have my street plowed or my road fixed or what have you. Uh, is it getting to the point where we have to start taking this more seriously? Not yet. Um, in, in, in brutal honesty, I'd like to. I'd like to, as a cybersecurity professional, say 
that one of these kinds of incidents is transformational, but but generally the the pain will will harness public attention and, and municipal attention for about 12 to 18 months post incident, and then people are going to get back to the day to day running of the city, which is a challenge. Um, and we haven't yet had a catastrophic hit such to the extent of a city is has been been laid bare for. Um, a massive amount of time in a massive way. Um, we haven't had a municipal wastewater system hit or water or other utility hit. But when we do, and sadly it's when, um, maybe we'll have that conversation. Uh, Ontario, Canada, municipalities safe? Are we getting hit more? We're getting hit more. And uh, ransomware had a billion-dollar year last year. <clears throat> it was up more than $500 million and almost doubled last year. Um, we had some good news last week where one major Russian gang um, got got kicked back by uh, international police forces, but reportedly they've rebuilt their operation in a week. Um, so they're not going anywhere. And, and the truth is, as long as this keeps making money, i.e. it's legal to pay these, um, as sad as that is, this industry is going nowhere. David Chipley with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boceron Security, cybersecurity incidents targeting municipalities, including Hamilton. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly know the issues uh, in and around colleges and universities since they capped, the federal government capped the uh, international amount of international students coming in, uh, I believe it was by about 30% over the next couple of years. Obviously, international students generate a tremendous amount of revenue for the institutions that they go to because they pay a higher tuition fee. Obviously, with the housing crisis and the housing shortage, uh, a lot of that is attributed to uh, international students coming in, perhaps temporary workers as well. And as a result of that has uh, uh, resulted in this cap, which now means that Ontario colleges and universities don't have as much money as they once did and are feeling the punch, uh, the pinch after this cap. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief Global News as they have announced uh, funding for post-secondary education in Ontario. Colin DeMello here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So, Colin, what is this all about? What, how do you break this down, and, and what does it mean for the colleges and universities? Well, first I'll tell you how much they are spending, and then I'll tell you how much the recommendation was for them to spend. So the government says that they're going to spend $1.3 billion over three years. It sounds like a big amount, but remember – you got about 47 institutions between colleges and universities, and that's $1.3 billion spread out over three years for all of them. So how is that going to be split, split up? Well, the government says $700 million will be sustainability funding. That means funding that's available to all 47 institutions. Another $200 million is for those specific institutions that have said, oh, you know, we are really in, in tough, uh, rough shape and we need a little bit more money. And then there's $167 million in capital repairs. As well, there's a whole, you know, smaller chunks of money, some for Northern Ontario universities, about $10 million, another $15 million in an accountability and efficiency fund. Essentially, if they find more efficiencies, they'll get more money, which is kind of you know, defeats the purpose, right? If you find efficiencies, why would you need the money in the first place? Uh, but but that's, that's what the government is offering as a suite of measures to kind of help these post-secondary institutions at a remarkable time in their history. They're dealing with a couple of different issues here. One, in 2019, there was the uh, tuition cap. That reduced their funding by quite a lot of money. Secondly, then there is the actual funding from the province, which hasn't really kept up with the rate of inflation. And then finally, uh, there's the international student cap, right? So the government had had this post, uh, this blue ribbon panel in 2023 that specifically recommended somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half billion dollars for the entire sector. The government came out today with 1.3 billion. Additionally, the sector is facing about a 1.8 billion dollar uh, drop in funding due to international student caps implemented by the federal government. Right. So really, you're talking about, you know, in the neighborhood of $5 billion that they may need, and the government's come out with about $1.3 billion. So you can very quickly see that the gap might still remain. 
so obviously, uh, universities and such officials are looking at this saying it's not enough. Is there promise of more on the horizon? Is this one of many? Is this a one-time thing? Well, this is, for now, a one-time a funding top-up. They haven't mentioned anything about any other future funding, which has really left a lot of the universities and colleges scratching their heads saying, okay, well, where do we go from here? The post-secondary institutions are also scrambling to figure out a couple of things. One, what is their slice of the pie and how is the province going to divvy it all up? Like, what do you need to prove before you actually uh, get this funding and, and how much of it are they going to get? Secondly, you know, when it comes to the international student piece, the province has already said that they're going to have to split up the number of students that they're getting from the federal government. The the federal government is offering an allocation to every province, and the provinces have to decipher which institutions get what. And of course, with that comes a lot of funding because you can charge international students exorbitant fees because they don't have the same caps for tuition. Again, the colleges and universities don't know what those numbers are either. So they're kind of in limbo right now, wondering, A, how much of this pie they're going to get, how many international students they're going to get, and then what is the future sustainability funding from the province? And so far, they are not getting a lot of answers. And nothing about tuition increases. Uh, There's no tuition increases for students. Is that accurate? Specifically, the government said today that You know, they are not going to kind of fund universities and colleges on the backs of students. So no further decrease in tuition, but they're saying they're not going to increase tuition any further than what it is right now for another three years. Now, they seem to be getting a lot of support from the NDP, the Liberals and the Green Party, all of whom say now is not the right time in the middle of an affordability crisis. So the government isn't really getting too much slack on that, except for the Mm. fact that Some are saying if you're going to reduce tuition, you have to make up that deficiency with taxpayer dollars. So instead of students paying it, we all pay it. Uh, And the government doesn't seem to be kind of wanting to close that funding gap at this moment. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Global News, make sure you're watching uh, Global Tonight for more on all of this in regard to funding of post-secondary education in Ontario. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Carol Todd has been an advocate uh, for her daughter, Amanda Todd, for years now, tireless advocate uh, in creating awareness about internet, uh, internet safety, mental health, online exploitation, that sort of thing. You might remember we lost Amanda uh, several years ago in a situation around online exploitation. And now today we are seeing uh, a new harms online harms legislation come to fruition and it's been a long journey for carol todd and she is with us now carol thank you for the time i hope you're doing well thanks for um, inviting me Scott. carol we've talked uh, over the years many times you know i still see a picture of amanda and it still brings um it makes my heart full uh just to know what she had gone through and what you've gone through to advocate for her and others like her. Uh, and, and thank you for that and, and what you have given the rest of us uh, with the loss of Amanda. Do you feel, um, you know, in the years that have gone by that your work is paying off, that you are making a dent, that people are finally listening? Most definitely. Um, it's been a slow journey, um, but a, a fruitful one. And I can only say that in the last, you know, in the 11 and a half years since Amanda's been gone, so 2012 was like a long time ago to, to mm. many people. Um, her story still lives on and lives on in different countries, right? And and from the different countries is where I gathered more information about what what other countries were doing about online harms. And I was always wondering, why aren't we? Why isn't Canada? And I know that in 2015, the Canadian government passed a a cyberbullying act, which had a whole bunch of things in that legislation, right? Um, And then that was 2015. So it's taken nine years to bring this one. Um, Very slow, but I can only look at the present and the future, right? So now that it's been Mm -hmm. able it can be talked about. It can be um, torn apart if, if needed um, to put better things in it. Um, but I've read through a summary of it, and I'm impressed with 
the things that I see so far. And I can only hope that it, when it's tabled, read, talked about and passed, right? I want it passed. It's it, it's it, to me. It's just amazing how many avenues this journey has taken for you. Whether it's Amanda, whether it's your own case that you were uh, involved with in in the Netherlands and what went on there, and now this is something completely different. It just seems the work's never done for you. <laughs> oh, you know what? When you look at the six main bullet points of this act, Amanda's like through her YouTube video and her story, it. Six out of the seven of them cover her what she went through, and so this is why it's important for me. And at the end of the trial, where Aiden Kavan was convicted of 13 Canadian years, um, I said out loud that I would love to see more done um, in terms of laws and, and legislation related to. Ex- exploitation and sextortion, um, especially on investigations, on, on, you know, charges and court trials and, and everything, because it was an area that we weren't talking about enough. And now, today, it got tabled, and I'm so happy and doing this in the memory of my daughter. So I hope she's watching. Uh, I'm sure she is. Um, you talked about how you've, you've uh, read over a summary of this and you liked what you saw. Do you think this will have the teeth that is needed to be effective? I hope so. And we can't just to have it and then let it lie dormant, right? We have to, we have to ensure that, that we work on it. And just like we work on everything else that we want to change. Um, and you know what? I say to the to the people listening that, you know, our children are the most important assets that we have. And they are our future. They will make our country stronger in the future. And so we have to protect them the best we can. We do not bear children and birth children just to throw them away and throw them into the online world, especially now. Um to have no safeguards in place. We have to have those safeguards in place. We have to protect our children. And if something goes south with this, I beg every person to go to their MP and ask why and make the persons, the groups um, that do not like this bill for whatever reason, talk about why they don't like it and identify it. And because when you talk about exploitation, sextortion, intimate images, bullying, um, hate speech, all that stuff, when it affects our children, it's not a good thing. We do not want to see our children mentally distressed. Amanda was mentally distressed by every, every time that she died by suicide. I don't you talk about how many years ago this was, Carol, and, and you know now we're talking about AI, which probably wasn't even around uh, during that time. What advice do you have for parents? We've only got a few seconds left. What do you? What, you know, I mean, you're a pillar of strength in what you've done, and it's amazing how much Amanda's video still resonates. Uh, what advice do you have for parents who are struggling? In a nutshell, for parents to know what the red flags are with bullying, cyberbullying, exploitation, um, social media apps, and you can actually use AI for good. Go on to ChatGPT or Copilot, whatever you can, whatever you have for AI, type in the red flags for, so red flags for exploitation, and it will come up with the red flags. Then use those red flags and have the conversations with your children and youth, because if they know what the red flags are and they're online and, and they see or hear or feel something that's not right, they will know to go to their trusted adults. And trusted adults, caregivers, there is no shame, there is no judgment, and there is no giving embarrassment to your youth or child that comes to you and says, I made a mistake. We all make mistakes. And so that's how we're going to get through some of this because the online harms bill is not 100 percent it's a part of it's a part of something that needs to be done but the other part is we still have to have those conversations with our kids online harms legislation tabled today with us carol todd advocate for awareness on internet safety mental health and online exploitation the mother of amanda todd whose video is still making an impact today Uh, carol thanks so much for the time very much appreciated good luck 
Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, where are we with the Hamas uh, and Israeli conflict? Uh, we're hearing now that there is the framework uh, in place for a ceasefire as Palestinian Prime Minister submits his government's resignation, a move that could open the door to reforms. What does all of this mean? Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and here now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a question, a couple of questions, and I'm sure I've already asked you them before, Arl, but in North America, many are demanding help for Palestinians displaced by the Hamas-Israeli war. Um, why, why is it that Gaza's neighbors, whether it's Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, are not helping Palestinians, or are they? How are they reacting to this, different from, say, uh, the West, North America? Well, they claim they're helping, but uh, uh, not in the sense that they could have. Israel could have, uh, uh, sorry, Egypt could have resettled uh, the uh, uh, Palestinians from Gaza, those who did not want to stay in Gaza. Egypt ruled Gaza uh, for uh, many, many years, between 1948 and 1967. Uh, Egypt was the exclusive ruler of Gaza. Jordan exclusively ruled all of the West Bank and East Jerusalem from 1948 to 1967. They could have created a Palestinian state. They could have resolved the refugee issue. So they didn't do that. And uh, uh, they are not uh, uh, prepared to do anything that uh, uh, resembles what happened uh, following the Second World War, where many populations uh, were resettled, when there were exchanges of population. So uh, they're have, helping in some humanitarian uh, areas, but that's about it. And certainly Egypt is keeping its borders very tight. They want to make sure that people from Gaza don't flood into Egypt. So, yes, I think they certainly could do much more, but they haven't done it in the past, and I don't uh, see them doing it now. Uh, how can we help if they aren't? It's, it's difficult because uh, it's a very, very... Uh, tough conflict, uh, and uh, Hamas did take hold of uh, Gaza, and uh, just about every democratic country uh, acknowledges that Hamas is a terrorist organization that uh, has not only been a tragedy for the Israeli people, but also a disaster for Palestinians, and they must go. And there's no easy way of removing Hamas. War is ugly. War is a tragedy. Uh, and uh, we are seeing the effects of that because Hamas is using the population as human shields. They have a little regard for uh, uh, the lives of the Palestinian people. They're willing to sacrifice them for the fanatical uh, ideology. So it makes it much more difficult. When aid is sent to Gaza, all too often Hamas grabs it and uses it for their own purposes. And uh, this limits of aid. So a great many people are suffering. And the loss of any life is a tragedy. And uh, no one wants to see people go hungry. No one wants uh, to see people without uh, medical care. But ultimately, we have to ask who is responsible for this. And, you know, there was a ceasefire on October 6th. This war would not have happened. But for the horrific massacre, which was intentional, deliberate, and uh, on a scale where President Biden said that the Hamas massacre on October 7th uh, made them worse than ISIS. What do we know about, we're hearing more and more information about how a framework for a ceasefire is coming to fruition. Is, is that accurate? And also, uh, Palestinian Prime Minister submits government's resignation. Those two points, how, how, uh, how uh, significant are they? The framework is a framework, and uh, the details become extremely crucial. Uh, the contours of it are that there would be somewhere 45 day ceasefire, and uh, Hamas would release uh, uh, something like 40 of the kidnapped women and children uh, that they're holding under horrific uh, conditions. Uh, but it hasn't been agreed to by Hamas, and we don't know what's going to 
happen, and so we have to wait and see. In terms of the Palestinian Authority, the resignation of the government of uh, Mohammed Steyer um, potentially could open up some change, but I remain kind of skeptical because the resignation was handed in to Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president, who is in roughly a decade and a half into his fourth-year rule. He's one of the most corrupt leaders in the Middle East. He is a Holocaust denier or minimizer. He's someone who wrongfully denies Jewish uh, indigeneity in the Middle East, someone who has uh, continually incited against Israel uh, and never prepares his people for peace. He's someone who said uh, at one point that he could have a government which would collaborate with Hamas. He has never fully denounced what Hamas did on October 7th, and he's using every international fora uh, to try to delegitimize Israel, and he stays in power. So uh, any government under him, I think we have to look at uh, with some skepticism. Are we any closer to a solution of what happens, what it will look like, what the template is for when this is over? Because, again, I remember Israeli earlier on in the week or last week said they were close to victory. They're they're uh, almost there. Is that accurate? Uh, they have defeated Israel. That is uh, something like 20 of the 24 battalions that I must head. But about four of those battalions are mixed in with the civilian population in right. Rafah. And so Israel has to get to them. Without that, they cannot eradicate Hamas. And what Hamas, of course, wants in any peace agreement is an ability to reconstitute themselves, which neither uh, the democracies around the world and certainly Israel would not find uh, acceptable. This is one of the uh, great difficulties. What happens the day after, if we reach that, where Hamas is eradicated, that is one of the big questions, what kind of rule there would be and whether there could be a two-state solution or whether there would be some uh, intermediate autonomy, whether there would be a period of transition. Uh, that remains to be seen, but we're not, we're not there yet. And there is still fighting in Gaza. And uh, we mustn't forget that Gaza is only one uh, part of the picture, that mm. uh, behind all this in many ways is Iran. Uh, Hamas would not have been able to do what he did without help from Iran. Hezbollah is firing rockets every day, and they are a proxy of Iran. The Houthis are impairing shipping and driving up costs of fuel and everything for the whole world, uh, and they are a proxy of Iran. And Iran is rushing to try to get nuclear weapons. So uh, a settlement in Gaza uh, would certainly help the people of Gaza and would be desirable because we all would like to see uh, the end of suffering everywhere. But Iran is there, unless ultimately the world deals with Iran, the biggest center for world terrorism, I think the problems will continue on a large scale. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and the latest on the Hamas-Israeli war. Arl, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley is coming up after the five, uh, 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Uh, well, I'm not on the city's IT link, so I'm good. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah. What do you do? All right. Um, I just can't uh, believe everything change, apparently in the city change, is all hooked into the same thing. Like, is you there, change your you change your password? Change your password? Yeah, maybe. But it just I can't believe reading this. And again, I, I've only read it quickly, but I can't believe everything on the entire city platform is all on one. You know, IT thing. It seems like you would have backups or something. I don't know. Uh, Danny is our last word, and I don't want to give it all away, but one line in it is, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, there you go. All right. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, and uh, I think I found something on the LRT the other day that was over 10 years old. And I'm thinking, my goodness, how long does it take to get her done? Uh, but anyway, I digress. Uh, labor unions are speaking out that if uh, the city doesn't get to run the LRT, that everybody should boycott it. Um, I, I just... 
think these are the silliest arguments that don't do anything for advancing the agenda of the union or even remotely getting the public engaged in this discussion. We've had this discussion, I believe, and I, I, I don't even think it's up to them to decide. Isn't it Metrolinks in the in the government, Metrolinks, that actually decides? And there's already been a report in that says leaving it in the city's hands is not the best idea. Why do we steek, why do we keep barking up this tree when it's pretty obvious at this point anyway that Metrolinx has the say? I would suggest that there are probably quite a few people in town that would be willing to join a boycott of the LRT because they don't agree with a different reason, but they just don't want it. And I, Scott, I'm telling you, I am hearing, and I think it has a lot more to do with the budget that we just came through and all the expenses and everything else. I'm hearing more people now saying, can we reconsider this thing? And, oh, and you know, and, and, and we're right back to that. This is the point about it though. We're, it seems like this goes in a perpetual cycle and we never get out of this thing. And even that's if Hamilton, death by delay, death by delay. That's Hamilton. Yeah. One step forward, two back. And, and the same arguments, if you delay long enough, the same argument rides up again and here we go. Well, so now here we go with the union thing. Look, I, I, I think the HSR, uh, is is the Hamilton street railway. It's named after or for railway on the street, which, you know, uh, for whatever that's worth, I don't know if that means anything now. That's, no. that's certainly where it started from, but I think that I truly believe that most people, Scott, now you may disagree with this. I truly believe though, that most people in the city right now, whether they agree with LRT or disagree with LRT, most probably are at the point of saying, A, if you're going to do it, do it. If you're not, get out. But number two, find us the least costly option to run this thing. We don't care necessarily how or who does it. Yeah. Just make sure that we're not stuck holding the bag on the most expensive option, which seems like it's often the default position around here. Find us the one that is going to be cost effective and we'll be on board with that. And if the union can say, here's how we can do it and it can be cost effective and cheaper than going to a private company, I think everybody in town would be 100% on board with them doing that. Yeah. But if the union doing it is going to cost us vastly more money than some other way, I think an awful lot of people are going to say, well, then sorry, we're just not interested in that now. We want our tax dollars preserved. You know, it, it's just, it's interesting when you started saying many people are, are really debating this and I, and I really don't hope we go backwards on this even, you know, uh, it, but it has just taken so long to do. Um, you have to wonder if the arguments are still relevant, uh, that they were 10 years ago and, and I'm sure that they are. Um, but again, this just, but it's not, we, Scott, I don't think, and, and I'm not, I don't want to interrupt, but there are now, even in the limited time since then, there are new technologies in battery buses, battery powered buses and things that didn't exist when this discussion started. Now, is that enough to, to undo everything here? I don't know, but like. I don't know. Why don't we just sit in our hands for another well, 10 years right. and see what else is invented? That's, well, hey, you know, that's what the Trudeau government did with our F-35s. Let's just wait till they're more money, but they'll be way more advanced then. This is I mean, the discussion. God. No, this is the discussion that's going, as long as this thing, you either do it or you don't do it. And, you know, it's, it just seems as though we have had, um, it's, it's, well, it's a cliche, but just sitting on the fence, like you can't fully jump in, but you don't want to jump out because you want the money and like truly. So let's let, what do you think now? Like the last number that was given was what? 3.4 billion that it was going to cost knows? to build this. It's Who not going to, it's not going to be that. It's not no. going to be that now. It's going to be more than that. So what I'd be fascinated at once upon a time, not that long ago, if you'll recall, the Ford government said, well, I'll tell you what, you can have the, like, what was it? The original billion dollars for whatever, and use it for other purposes and transit, or you can go with this. Well, what if now, because the cost of this had gone up, what if they said, okay, tell you what, we're going to give you two and a half billion dollars. Just do whatever transit stuff you want with that. Do you think now in 2024, people's minds change or are they still bound and determined that it's going to be an LRT? I don't know the answer. Uh, I still think we need transit more than we did 10 years ago. I didn't say I, I, not transit. I didn't say not transit. I said, yeah, if they gave money for transit, yeah, whatever. would it be LRT or would people say, let's go some other route? I don't know where people would go on that. 
I, I, I don't know. Do you see Kitchener Cash and theirs in? And imagine, Scott, if we had got this complete prior to the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic. Number one, how much cheaper it would have been. Number two, how much inconvenience, everything. It, it would all be done by now. We could have easily got this done by now. And here we are now in a post-pandemic world where everything is way mm. more expensive. You sit on your hands, you lose. It's either winning or losing. There's no gray area. You win or you lose. And we're losing. If this had been done before COVID, they would have been put in mothballs because no one was riding it during COVID and then they would have come back and nothing would have worked because that's how stuff goes. That's it. Nothing seems to work in Hamilton. It's broken. All right. It is, other places uh, too, though, for the record, other places, Ottawa's LRT experience. Ottawa can't get a Freedom Convoy out of their backyard, for God's sake. Do not use Ottawa as All, a glowing example. No, no, Ottawa, not as a glowing, Ottawa, not as a glowing example. If we, Ottawa... Ottawa screws up everything because it's just a bunch of government employees living there. So we have again, to live, we have to live Scott with our fingers crossed every day, every day that if the LRT finally does happen here, that we do not have an LRT experience like they have, because it has been an absolute debacle. It has been an absolute debacle. The same cannot be said by Kitchener's, which was built after. Let's learn and stop pointing to the one freaking mistake. I lived in Calgary in the 1980s. They had it for years. Come on. We can do this. Stop making excuses. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for joining us. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one from Danny on cyber attacks. Welcome to the app era. No money, but a cell phone that will solve all your problems. Old saying, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You can't tell people anything anymore. Maybe Justin will give the Hamilton police $100 million for cybercrime. Keep right except to pass. 